Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to another episode of the show that explores our place in time. Certainly identifying our address in the landscape of all possible moments. We've got to step outside of the container of our cultural paradigm, the things that we assume to be true, and consider the perspectives of other cultures throughout history. I find it fascinating personally that every high culture throughout history in one form or another worshipped the stars, the movements of celestial bodies, that their temple complexes and daily rituals were organized as a microcosm of the night sky, of the transcendental mystery. And these, of course, are cultures that were able to devote extraordinary time to studying these things. Thousands of years of dedicated scholarship. So it's probably unwise to throw that effort out with our modern rejection of the ancient world's naivete. And lo, a comprehensive survey of history shows us that, after all, there are uncanny correlations between the placement and relationships of the planets to the events of our mundane lives. Or so goes the argument of world-renowned historian Richard Tarnas in his book, Cosmos and Psyche. I've been following the work of his daughter, Becca Tarnas, in this field now for a few years, and was delighted that I got to meet her and speak with her for the show at the MAPS conference in California in April. There's no denying that we live in revolutionary times, and it was a treat to sit down with Becca and discuss the archetypal perspective on our extraordinary age and what her discipline of archetypal cosmological study suggests is the work cut out for us over the next few years. I'm super glad that we finally have a scholarly astrologer on the show. It's an untouched area so far in our explorations of time and temporality. But before we get started, I want to thank a couple new subscribers to my Patreon page, Dan Gooden and John Lentz. I really appreciate you two, as well as everyone else who is contributing a small monthly amount and helping me keep this show afloat, as well as participating in a totally exciting, emergent form of 21st century distributed patronage. If you like what I'm doing with this show, then go to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and check out the rest of my stuff. I'm writing a collection of essays called How to Live in the Future, as well as publishing a great deal of music like what you're hearing right now. And that stuff, as well as a bunch of other cool little treats, is available for free to subscribers. Quite a bit of the stuff on that site is free to everyone, actually, so have at it. Also, big thanks to everyone who subscribed to and reviewed the show on iTunes. So far, the reach of this show has been entirely organic. Thanks to you guys sharing episodes with your friends and helping me improve our standing in the algorithms that determine which unmet friends see this show. So, thank you so much! The future telepathic hive mind in which each of us are linked thanks you for contributing to its integrity. So, okay, that's enough of that. Enjoy this episode with archetypal astrologer Becca Tarnas. at the MAPS Psychedelic Science Conference 2017. And it's very lively and there's lots of hubbub and you know that's that sense of like seals on a beach and everybody's getting a piece of the action and it's very hard to find a place to sneak off and have a quiet conversation, but it's exciting because there's it, it, this conference hasn't happened in four years, and it's just this massive convergence of freaks and geniuses from all over the world. And one of them is Becca, who I've been wanting to meet for years, actually. 
Becca is a doctoral candidate at the California Institute of Integral Studies. She is an archetypal astrologer. She is the editor of the Archive Journal of Astrology. Very interesting person and totally perfect for future Fossils podcasts because of her deep and multi-dimensional understanding of time and cosmos. So welcome on the show, Becca. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really honored by that introduction. <laughs> and it feels so exciting to be here at this conference and to see the huge number of people that have gathered to, it, it feels like we're at kind of an edge of a moment in history. So I'm so grateful to be participating. So as far as that goes, being at the edge of a moment, I mean, you really have a unique perspective on this as an astrologer, but as an academic astrologer. I mean, I want to make it clear to people that, you know, not to define you in relationship to your father's work, but your father, the historian Richard Tarnas, wrote a very compelling and well-articulated argument, the book Cosmos and Psyche, that says we're at the cusp of a paradigm shift in our understanding of the the nexus or location of meaning, that it's not merely generated within the human skull, and that it's it's in some sense a fundamental to or diffused throughout the entire cosmos, that, that mind and matter are perfectly correlated internal and external dimensions of each other, or, or perspectives on something transcendentally, unlang currently unlanguageable. So, like, I just want to establish that you are a fucking professional, and that this is a, a scientifically and academically rigorous conversation, and, and not a uh, newspaper horoscope thing, and without even getting into that part of it, I'm really curious to know what you, as a trusted figure within this emerging academic community that takes this stuff seriously, believes is going on in so far as our cusp in history. I mean, this is the conversation is so much deeper now than it was in the 1960s when we were all singing about the age of Aquarius. So, like, where am I in time right now? Well, it's interesting you bring up the parallel between now and the 1960s because in the 1960s there was a conjunction of the two planets, Uranus and Pluto, and you mentioned my father, Richard Tarnas's work. He wrote about the alignments of Uranus and Pluto throughout history in his book, Cosmos and Psyche. And whenever Uranus and Pluto come together in the sky in an alignment, we see throughout history this correlation with major revolutionary periods. So the archetype of Uranus relates to rebellion, revolution, change, disruption. It has a very tricksterish energy that is fast-paced. It's oriented toward innovation, toward technology, toward bringing in what's new, what's different, what's exciting. It has a kind of electrical charge to it. And then you pair that with the archetype of Pluto, which relates to the depths, to the underworld, what's intense, what's dramatic. Uh, Pluto relates to deep transformation. It's the archetype of the death-rebirth mystery. Often it has to do with, with that relationship to the underworld, what's been oppressed or repressed. And you bring those two together and Uranus just liberates, it unleashes that Plutonic energy. So these two planets, the last time they were in an alignment was the 1960s. It was a conjunction, began in the year 1960, lasted until 1972, and we saw that correlate with all these major revolutionary movements, including, of course, the bringing forward of psychedelics into the popular counterculture. And after that era ended, the very next time these two planets have come into relationship with each other is right now. And they've been in a square or a 90 degree angle to each other since 2008, correlating with you know, Obama coming into the presidency and these kind of restless revolutionary movements from you know, Occupy Wall Street to the Arab Spring. That was kind of the beginning of this alignment. And we're seeing it escalate over these last several years and the the alignment's actually going to last until 2020 so we're kind of in the the peak moment of it but what is 
particularly interesting about right now, about this year especially, is that those two planets, Uranus and Pluto, are joined by a third planet, Jupiter. And the archetype of Jupiter tends to uplift, to expand, to elevate whatever it touches. It magnifies, it makes big and grand whatever it's touching. So if we've already been seeing this intense revolutionary energy, this impulse toward change, toward looking at the structures of power and kind of trying to overthrow that, I mean, I think you look everywhere right now and authority is being questioned on every level. And coming into this alignment, is Jupiter. It started right around the time of the U.S. election when we're having this massive change uh, taking place, an unleashing of the shadow, Uranus breaking the bounds of a, the Plutonic shadow, which it so much is embodied by our uh, current administration. Uh, and even the kind of large scale of what is happening on the world stage, I think that really reflects Jupiter coming into the alignment. And just to draw a compa comparison of when those three planets were in the sky together previously, we can look at the end of the 1960s. There was a triple conjunction of the same planets, Jupiter, Uranus, and Pluto. 1968, 1969 correlates with the moon landing, it correlates with Woodstock, just this huge energy, potent energy toward change. And just in the same way that in the 60s there was the psychedelic movement, it's almost like that's gone underground to a certain degree and then it re-emerged under the next alignment of Uranus and Pluto over, that's been happening now for the last nine years, really. Jupiter comes in in the last few months. It's a, about a year and a half transit and it just magnifies things. I mean, one way that I'm seeing that come through at this conference is that there have been, so there's the conference in 2010 and the conference in 2013, both under the Uranus-Pluto. As soon as Jupiter comes in there to make things bigger, the conference is, what, double in size? Yeah. It's reaching so much further, the horizons are broadening, and it brings this feeling of hope, like uplifting, celebratory hope, and that all relates to the archetype of Jupiter as well. Um, and it's on behalf of change, it's on behalf of the potential that so many people see in psychedelic medicine and sacred medicine to be able to affect real change, the real change that we're looking for and that the world so desperately needs. Mm. Eloquent. So, how do you how do you see all of that fitting within a more general portrait of a psychedelic future? You know, it seems it seems to me like we were talking about this. We did a live podcast taping on the symposium stage this morning, and one of the questions I posed the panelists was if the internet is is sort of a, a symptom of this increasing functional connectivity between human beings in the same way that we see this increasing functional connectivity between brain regions and the influence of psychedelics, then you can argue that we're living in an inherently psychedelic age and that there are these consequences that if you, you can use that as a metaphorical template and look into our future and say, yeah, you know, there's a lot of these things that we the transpersonal revelations, the anxieties of moving from one state of consciousness into another state of consciousness, this question of telepathy, and you know, all these other components uh, seem like they're becoming sort of mundane realities in the world at large now. So like, what do you, you know, when all of this is said and done, you know, what do you, what do you think 2020 is feeding us? I mean, I'm not, you know, not specific events, but like, what is the texture of this world that we're moving into? Or what, is it, what does it seem that your study of archetypal astrology discloses in that regard? Well, I think one of the things that's so important around working with psychedelics is that it doesn't shy away from the shadow. It's really about facing that potential toward the really challenging things. And it's not just about kind of going into an altered state of consciousness and having a great time. I mean, that sense of bliss, that sense of opening can be there. But the reason it's a medicine, I think, is because it really allows us to go into our wounds, into um, 
the pain that we carry, that heaviness, and also the things that we're blind to about ourselves or the things that uh, are really difficult to look at in the society, uh, whether it's you know, racism or sexism, misogyny, uh, whether it's the ecological crisis and being able to really face that shadow that is kind of an inherent part of our society at this time. And people are waking up to that. That's another expression of the Uranus Pluto, the wider awakening, that's the archetype of Uranus, awakening to the Plutonic shadow, um, to what's corrupt, to what is kind of festering below the surface. And it's about bringing it forward and then working on finding ways to kind of realistically integrate that and move toward healing. Looking toward the end of this decade, looking toward 2020, it's interesting to note that the this current Uranus-Pluto square, this revolutionary period, is going to actually end in a conjunction of two planets, Saturn and Pluto. So we've already talked a bit about that archetype of Pluto, the depths, the underworld, the, the taboo, the chthonic. Saturn is a very different archetype than Uranus and Jupiter, which bring that kind of upward, change-oriented, uplifting feeling. Saturn contains, Saturn brings structure, Saturn narrows, Saturn judges. Uh, Saturn's the, the principle of limitation, um, of the past, tradition, history. And when you bring Saturn and Pluto together, it tends to correlate with intense time periods. It's a shorter transit. Uh, it lasts around three, four years. The kind of peak of the transit lasts about two years. And if we look back through history, at times that Saturn and Pluto have come together, they have come together during really difficult times. If we just look through the 20th century, Saturn and Pluto were in alignment when World War I happened, when World War II happened, when 9-11 happened, the beginning of this century. Those are not easy periods. So we are entering into, at the end of this decade, one of those periods where things constrict. And I think it's going to be a, without making any kind of specific prediction, that's not really the realm of astrology that it's I work unprofessional. in. Unprofessional. It's an it's an archetypal prediction, mm -hmm. so we can get a sense of what the archetypal qualities will be of the time, but what the concrete events will be depend on how we prepare ourselves. So one of the ways that Saturn Pluto alignments can come through is very similar to what I was just talking about, about that capacity to face the shadow, to find a strong moral center in relationship to that which is corrupt, that which may even be perceived as, as evil or destructive. And I think going forward over the next few years, developing the bonds of community, of relationship, of friendship that can face that kind of heavy storm at a collective level, I think that's really what's going to help see us through this perhaps rite of passage as humanity. It makes me think of um, something that Carl Jung said. Carl Jung was born with a Saturn-Pluto alignment in his chart. And near the end of his life, he was asked whether we would see a, a nuclear war or whether there would be a third world war, that, that kind of question. And he said, to the extent to which individuals can hold the tension of opposites within themselves, as opposed to othering, as opposed to saying, I'm the good person, those people out there, those are the, the evil people. The more we can hold that tension within ourselves, the less likely that kind of conflict will play out on the world stage and rather that kind of conflict can play out within oneself and then be resolved that something new can be born from holding that tension and I think that's something that working with psychedelics can really allow someone to do you can recognize that tension of opposites within yourself between the sense of kind of identity of who you are and and the deep shadow within you and find some way of reconciling those that's really powerful. Gosh, I, um, and I'm, I'm ordinarily not just like flattering guests, but you know, lately I've been in this place where I, you know, I just got back from spending a month in Australia and 
to see a country still on its economic up and up, even if it's coming at the, the cost of this exploitation of natural resources, just like everywhere else, but to see this place where the minimum wage national average is almost twice what it is in the states and everywhere I went people had a place to put up guests that were traveling through and there's so much wildlife everywhere and I got back to this country and I was like what am I doing here there really is a sense and I've been feeling it for years of like the gathering clouds of some massive storm and this sense of how do I hold to my center in this case you know how do I not act from a place of fear but, you know, just as you, as you would if you were free swimming with, uh, you know, a white shark, for example, which people do. And they say, look, you know, all you've got to do is have the right relationship to your fear and to your respect for this, you know, the power of these forces that are beyond yourself. You know, so I guess, how is it that you align with this stuff personally, psychologically, emotionally? You know, you're just constantly submerged in the study and the contemplation of these vast cosmic forces that sh that are, if not causing, right? Because that's not the archetypal thing. It's it's this correlating. Correlated. It's the minute hand and the hour hand and the second hand. They all move together. You know, and it's the everything breathes together, as right. Plotinus said. Perfect. So this, you know, how is it that? I mean that you handle holding yourself open to this this contemplation of this vast cosmic shit all the time and like how do you anchor it in your life in a way that doesn't just you know make you despair the sort of insignificance of the human scale of events or you know concerned for the sort of brooding and impending quality of you know the nature of your life and mine and everyone, it just seems like the, the next 30 years are just going to be a total shit show. Or, you know, like 15 or so. It's, I mean, in a weird way, as an aside, in a weird way, it's strange to me to note the similarity between what's coming out of an archetypal study here and what we're seeing with the fourth turning stuff that then, you know, this book that was so influential to Steve Bannon, you know, and he was saying, I fully accept and recognize that I am the agent of this revolutionary upset, this order. And so many of the people that are profoundly influential in our society right now are acting as if, they're acting under the assumption that this country in, in particular, in this world in general, are going to be embroiled in this very, very confusing and total reorganization over the next, you know, until like 2030 or so. And so, like, how do you, like, this is kind of a second question, but, like, how do you sit with knowing that, like, the majority of your adult life, your, you know, your thriving years is going to be living through all of this chaos and transformation? That's quite a question <laughs> to try and answer. I oscillate between a lot of feelings. I think having the archetypal perspective helps me to to zoom out and see this as part of a larger narrative and to feel myself participating in something that's so much bigger than me so that helps um, I definitely feel fear as any mortal person would during this time I also feel the excitement, that kind of wave of excitement of this very powerful revolutionary moment, recognizing that change really is necessary in this time. We are seeing so many systems collapsing and they're systems that are exploitative, that are exploitative of the earth and of other species and of so many members of our own species. It's just shocking how human beings treat each other in many ways. And it sounds like we've got a protest going on right behind us, actually. Yeah, it really does. It's, uh, it's Earth Day, folks, April 22nd, and we're, it's also Science Day. There's a bunch of science protests. I got a lot of friends in town that are out in the streets marching for respect of facts, which is a very surreal, and, a surreal condition to be in. But go ahead, yep. please, 
continue. It's just, it's a totally appropriate soundtrack. Absolutely, yeah. It's amazing having this kind of echo behind us as we're talking about <laughs> the uh, change-oriented moment of, of our time. So I think another way that I kind of grapple with the current moment and just sit with the amount of tension that's coming forward from so many different factions of our country and of our world is feeling like there's probably some part of me, maybe some part of my soul that wanted to be born in this time and to just try and participate as fully as possible because it is a remarkable time to be alive even as it is a scary time to be alive and I think kind of moving between those feelings of, of fear, moving between those feelings of grief and trying to metabolize the great sense of loss of so many things that are beautiful from the past or of the natural world that are just slipping away forever. And at the same time, trying to hold some sense of, of deep hope for the future that maybe I'll see at some point in my lifetime or in my children's lifetime, I don't know. I think being okay with the mystery has to be a part of it. And at the same time, it can't be a part of it all the time. Sometimes we do have to just melt down and accept the utter chaos and fear of it all and then pick ourselves back up from that place and keep going forward. Well, right on, yeah. That's generally speaking good advice. Or at least it seems like good advice as a child of the same era that you're a child of. You know, this, this, this whole show, I, you know, I, I told you a little bit, this whole show is about getting people to reflect on how the future will remember us. And in that sense, you know, I can't, I can't help but think that it's an archaeological project to the extent that we dig up these ancient cities and every little scrap of everything that we find is so valuable. You know, it teaches us so much and it raises so many questions and I feel like right now, even though it seems to us like we're living through this explosion of information, and we are, we're producing so, so, so much recorded data of stuff and it's only the beginning of that. You know, Kevin Kelly's like, we're at the very beginning of the internet. And so I kind of, you know, this, this whole thing is premised on every little bit of data exhaust that we have, all this junk that we just think is it's, it's like too much for us, is going to be not enough for the historians of the future that are wondering what it was like to be alive in a time, in a moment, when we were not constantly recording everything down the atomic level or whatever. You know, that's, that's been the premise of some of my favorite works of science fiction, that, like Glass House by Charles Strauss, you know, that, that they create an archaeological reconstruction of the early 21st century like from like YouTube videos and stuff and they try to get people to live in it and they apply a game theory to get these transhumans to stay in one body for two years and get married and have kids and go to church and a job and it's this massive mind fuck because it's, it's the reverse of future shock it's past shock they can't handle being limited in that way and at any rate at any rate I just think um, in your case, as it relates to your work, I mean, you personally are, I believe, on the flagship of a profound change in the way that we understand our relationship to the universe. I mean, we're, I mean this is as significant a moment in some respects as the you know, 17th and 18th century emergence of the modern scientific method, or, you know, even earlier, you know, the, arguably the evolution of language among human beings. That was a singularity from which we could never return. So, like, how do you, like, I would just be curious, you've got a more of a general introductory kind of a, a rap about how you understand your work fitting into that larger historical narrative. And I'm curious to know what you see taking shape here in that space. It's very interesting working in the field of archetypal astrology and the larger discipline of archetypal cosmology, which kind of encompasses the philosophical, metaphysical, historical perspective that 
really provides a worldview and a framework for the actual practice of archetypal astrology. Because in our larger mainstream culture, you know, coming out of the kind of disenchantment of the modern worldview, coming out of Europe primarily, there is a view of astrology that is, as my dad has described it, astrology is the gold standard of superstition. And to find within that a worldview looking at the relationships between the planets, the archetypal meanings associated with each planet, and then just seeing through history this profound relationship between the planetary combinations and the events that unfold on Earth, that these correlations really are there. And it's it's nuanced, it's poetic. You get this sense of the the cosmos itself as a divine artist in a way when you can recognize these archetypal patterns coming through in art in music in relationships and in historical events and in individual lifetimes and the patterning of someone's birth chart the patterning of their transits and how that gets expressed in these myriad multivalent multi-dimensional ways it's it expresses this kind of cosmic intelligence that is so much more than a human being could create that patterning of. And the sheer wonder associated with that. Sometimes I feel like, uh, let's say I'm listening to a piece of music and can kind of hear the archetypal qualities coming through and I look at the person's chart and get to see this amazing correlation. And then you watch a film or you see um, a painting and see these archetypal expressions again and again there isn't enough time in a single lifetime to explore all of those um, to be able to, to speak about it to share the pure artistry of the cosmos and I find that so enchanting to be kind of able to witness that poetry of the universe uh, through this particular practice of archetypal astrology that that's really what keeps me kind of in awe of it and will probably continue pushing me in my my research over the rest of my life where is that research now i mean you're you're in a community you're the co-editor of a journal this is a burgeoning discipline that people are taking very seriously what is the the state of things right now you know i mean i haven't really been keeping up with the publications so you know how in what directions are these investigations blossoming? I mean, clearly, I'm sure there's a lot of analysis of, like you're saying, cultural artifacts and like various historical investigations. But like, I mean, what's going on in the field right now among all of these, you know, very well-educated and, and intelligent motherfuckers? Well, the astrological community globally is huge, and there's so many different branches of astrology and I've just happened to be really drawn into this particular one that focuses especially on the planetary aspects but also that really holds this kind of archetypal perspective archetypal being grounded in a philosophical and psychological tradition stretching from Plato's idea of forms or the ideas, which are essentially archetypes, all the way up through uh, Carl Jung's idea of psychological archetypes. And using that kind of perspective and also a very rigorous methodology of discernment or of, of rigor and imagination, as I, I've heard a number of people describe it, where you really look at the data and look for patterns and then at the same time kind of come into this more the way I was describing before almost like a spiritual orientation the sense of wonder again of being very open to what the archetypal meaning is that is associated with each planet kind of drawing on more of a Hillmanian like James Hillman's sense of, of the archetypes as almost gods as he would describe them I'm a fellow Hillmaniac yeah, he's 
he's a genius. <laughs> yeah, he's got that um, brilliant Mercury-Uranus alignment in his chart where the, the quick wit, that mind that can just jump from place to place and put things together. If I could write like that, that would be remarkable. So yeah, I'm glad we're fellow uh, Hillman um, fans. But as, yeah. <laughs> but as far as where I can really just speak to where the research is in archetypal cosmology, there's of course the text that we've been talking about, Cosmos and Psyche, uh, written by Richard Tarnas that kind of set different fundamentals in the field. The journal that I co-edit with Grant Maxwell was actually started in 2007 by Kieran LeGrace, Rod O'Neill, and um, Bill Street, among others, came out of a group called the Archetypal Research Collective. And so they launched that journal and came out with four issues that we have actually free articles from those opening issues available on our website, which is archai.org. We can also get the full journals online. A-R-C-H-A-I. And then last year, Grant Maxwell and I published what was our first issue of the journal, issue five, and it was called Saturn and the Theoretical Foundations of an Emerging Discipline. So we actually republished an essay by James Hillman on Senex Consciousness, which is just a remarkable piece that he wrote quite a number of years ago. And it's really just focused on the, the Senex archetype, the Saturn archetype. And so we use that as kind of the backbone for the issue. And we invited different astrologers from this community like Delia Shargell, like Jessica Garfield Cabara. I know her. It's weird. I ran into, I, I met back when she was just Jessica Garfield. I met her on the street in Boulder, Colorado. I don't remember what the deal was. And it was just like, we had this random conversation and realized we had the same last name. And right. anyway, it, it was so cool to see years later to see that she came out here and was like in the in this field specifically where like I almost went to CIIS myself back in like 2007 and so it's like I, I, I had to tag out and tagged her in or something it was like, anyway sorry go on she, she's a wonderful archetypal astrologer and she and Delia Shargell who I just mentioned they just launched a podcast called Deeper Than Day where they're bringing together archetypal astrology and depth psychology there's another podcast called Correlations that was started a number of years ago by Matthew Stelzner, who has been doing this work since the 90s. Uh, Chad Harris, who's been a guest on the Correlations podcast many times and has been the assistant to Richard Tarnas in many of his classes, been filming his classes for many years. He has an amazing YouTube channel called Archetypal View and is posting many, many videos. I have a few videos up there. A lot of us have videos on, on his channel. There's a number of different, uh, different avenues where this work is being done, but the emphasis is really on, it's on the rigor, it's on demonstrating the correlations and really demonstrating that solid academic research background. Kieran LeGrice, who was the, the founding editor of the Archive Journal, has done a lot of work. He teaches as well. He teaches down at Pacifica Graduate Institute. So there are a lot of different people in this field that are continuing to do really exciting work. And I think all of us just want to keep opening this world up to others. You know, I have my own astrological practice. I think most of us who are doing research in the field have private practices of doing astrological counseling and just on that one-to-one -one individual level. It's kind of hard to stop, probably, <laughs> once you've reformatted your entire worldview. I mean, it's just a conversation that seems to keep happening. Once you see through the astrological lens, it becomes very hard not to. And to come to an event like this and to see the just the large kind of large-scale celebratory energy that's all very much related to the archetype of Jupiter in relation to this psychedelic revolutionary moment which fits that Jupiter Uranus Pluto T-square that we started off talking about it's just this lens that you can't help but 
recognize when when you're looking at art, when you're looking at film, when you're talking to people, when you're having a bad day, and you realize, oh, well, I have these transits, I can at least work with them in this way and maybe move it toward a more life-enhancing or noble expression. Mm. And I think that's a big part of the draw as well, is that as you get to see the range of ways that the planetary archetypes manifest in someone's life and events, etc., then you can recognize how to live in participation with them and how to move that same archetypal energy, those same qualities towards something that's healthy, towards something that's life enhancing, uh, that allows you to grow. And again, I, I think it allows you to kind of do the same integrative work that working with psychedelics does as well. Hmm. I want to ask in this case just as an aside when you you know you and I are both talking about rigor here and for an you know for an audience that might not know what that means you know that might be connecting that kind of exclusively with the statistical and metastatistical analyses of quantitative science you know p less than 0.05 you know what does rigor look like in your field you know how is it that a, a community of the adequate you know the, a a community of peer researchers judge the validity of a person's correlative claims in this discipline? That's a really great question because astrology doesn't necessarily, this particular view on it, hold up to certain forms of statistical analysis. Or if it does, I think it would have to be tremendously nuanced in how the statistical model is developed. And in a way, that actually brings up a question around how we even approach this data, how we approach this perspective, with a sense of openness that maybe the cosmos is full of meaning. And that in itself kind of takes a, that's a quantum leap of change to allow that possibility. So first you have to just allow the possibility that it could work. And then from there, the sense of rigor really comes from, first of all, just making sure that all the data is accurate. So if you're, if you're looking at someone's birth chart, you want to make sure that you have all the correct data of when they were born down to the time if possible. And if it's not down to the time, then you don't make correlations based on something you would need to know the time for, such as the exact position of the moon or what's rising or what would be at the midheaven. So, first of all, just making sure your data is accurate, same with transits. And then approaching it in a way that both allows you to be open to the multivalent expressions of the different planetary combinations, and then also looking for consistent patterns. Does someone who is, is born with a particular alignment, do they tend toward certain behaviors, certain expressions of that alignment and keeping track of that in a really kind of careful and consistent way. At a personal level, with doing that kind of rigorous analysis, a lot of people when they're first getting into astrology, they will track their transits and journal about everything that's happening that they see as relating to those transits and just as you do that over time then you start to really recognize oh, this correlation I'm seeing a consistent pattern here this correlation oh maybe I was misattributing that because you see it come up again and you realize it's part of something else I think it really does come down to being to being open to being questioning and also to not assuming uh, more than that kind of quantitative statistical perspective because there is it's an art and a science together it's empirical but it's a kind of radical empiricism that to use a Jamesian term right, yeah. that's a little again more open um, more nuanced and also kind of aware of that poetic even creative divinity element that's seems to be present in the cosmos. As, as I understand it, you know, when you talk about openness in this, it's not merely open-mindedness in the, kind of, the sense, it kind of a mundane sense that people mean it. It is open in the sense of a true approach to the scientific, the, the provisional nature of scientific knowledge. And you know, it seems like, you know, as 
someone who spent a lot of time kind of armchair studying the philosophy of science and the evolution of our methods of inquiry. The scientism that has so riddled modern conversation that, you know, that most people, it seems, even among the practicing scientific community, regard science from what is actually a pre-modern point of view where the authority is externally derived by, you know, from a class of essentially priests, people who are capable of reading the occult texts, and that we never entirely grew out of that because each of us has to grow through what James Fowler called the stages of faith on our own. You know, that we all have to develop and mature into this more nuanced sense uh, of paradox and tolerance for ambiguity, and that that's the, that is the place where a truly rigorous approach to investigation of the world uh, joins what we traditionally call science and what we traditionally call spirituality. Like you're sitting there right at the, at the crossroads of those two things that aren't really two things that have been, you know, and will continue to be for many people two things as a consequence of their need to clamp down on one end of a dilemma. That in some sense, you know, when we talk about this protracted, like we were talking about earlier, you know, what's going on right now in the, the hour and the minute hand of our lives, we seem to be confronted with this challenge to, or it's, it's an initiatory ordeal on a planetary scale where we're forced to keep our hand in the fire, you know, the Bene Gesserit pain test, stay with it and, and, and remain in this state of ambiguity and, and chaotic emergence for as long as you can. And that's what, you know, Alvin and Marie Toffler called future shock, that people retreat from this and into these simpler ways of understanding. And, and it's, uh, I don't know, I mean, what, where do you, how do you imagine a world in which this revolutionary shift in our fundamental notions of what it is to know something at all, when that becomes the new normal, where are we gonna be? What are we gonna look like? You know, how is, you know, academic research and just everyday life going to be practiced and understood. I mean, do you, I mean, you must think about this stuff. Well, One day when everyone agrees with the, that this is true. You know, on the one hand, I, there's obviously this strong hope that doing this work will kind of open out larger and larger and more and more people will be able to engage with an astrological practice, with a cosmological practice, some way of connecting with something larger than simply the human sphere. And you actually, the word you just used of how do you imagine that future, I think perhaps that may be the key. And my dissertation research is actually really focused on the ima imagination, imaginal ways of knowing. And that in so many fields seems like a key of acknowledging that we are imagining beings, that the imagination is something that suffuses the the mental abstract realm, the physical realm. The imagination is basically the way of knowing of the soul and it, it has this kind of connective capacity. When we look at say the history of science and I do often wish that many people who work within the sciences, I definitely don't want to generalize, but that there was more of an acknowledgement of what that history has been because science has been evolving in really fascinating... Sorry about that. My goodness. <laughs> There's a guy just knocked over a sign here that says, don't use these bathrooms. <laughs> Well, that was dramatic. A dramatic yes. way for... Yes. Well, you know, it's a, <laughs> that was almost the old nut that science proceeds one funeral at a time. <laughs> right. Get knocked in the head with a, a stanchion. Anyway. Well, I just kind of want to emphasize this piece around imagination and even the role that imagination has played throughout the history of science. That we wouldn't be able to make these kind of sudden paradigm shifts or leaps into understanding 
go back to Copernicus, that the sun is at the center of our solar system, that the going to Kepler, the planetary orbits were not circles as was thought for so long, but rather they're ellipses, to the emergence of Darwin's evolutionary theory, and so on and so forth. Just the, the amount of evolution that has taken place within scientific paradigms has been aided so much by that capacity of imagination to imagine the world looking differently and then that kind of provides the the scientific leap into the new worldview so whatever realm one is working in whether it's the sciences whether it's history whether it's the arts whether it's psychology, I think the role that imagination plays in recognizing that that's one of our human and I would probably argue more than human capacities. I think the imagination is a cosmic capacity in some way that allows us to recognize the deeper meaningful patterns of, of our world. Damn. I like it. I've always been fond of, you know, almost like the Alan Moore Promethea graphic novel perspective that, that all of this thing that we take as normal is actually just a little bubble inside of imagination, which is the greater reality. But that's a whole other conversation. Becca Tarnas, you were really cool. I'm glad that we finally got to catch up. Where can we send people to follow up? I mean, archive.org for the journal, but when they want to get to know your work in particular, where do we where do we send them? I have a website. It's just beccatarnas.com, and I've been posting essays and some videos and artwork there for a number of years. So that's the place to to find what I'm working on, uh, to also see upcoming talks and other events that I'm doing going forward, and uh, you can also contact me through that. <gasps> Personal contact! That's really cool of you. Well, right on. Thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, if you have anything that you would like to, to leave as a message to your future self, what might that be? A message to my future self, I like that. You know, what's actually coming to mind is this line from a Rilke poem, which is, it's from his Book of Hours, and it's, just keep going, no feeling is final. And I think I would want to say that both to myself and to others as we're going forward in these next several years. And while the horizon does look dark, we do have this capacity to experience everything and come out the other side. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, an amazing collection of podcasts along with Third Eye Drops, Synchronicity Podcast, It's All Happening, The Astral Hustle. Be sure to go to mindpodnetwork.com and check it out. And if you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks again. Until next week.